While they're going out, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. You know, some scenes are difficult to describe in words. I think of rolling hills with beautiful grass, well-manicured, flowers blooming, trees just beautiful. Oh, that's a golf course. I'm sorry. (laughs) Do you ever notice that the uh, most beautiful places in a city are the golf courses? That's why I like to spend a lot of time there. Well, you know, you can see a sunrise or you can see a sunset or you can be out uh, uh, at the ocean sometime. I don't know. Uh, we're kind of far away from the ocean. We're not that far away from uh, uh, Lake Superior, but uh, sometimes there's some beautiful scenes there. Uh, you can go back uh, uh, to the Rockies or someplace uh, out west where there's some snow-covered mountains. I shouldn't say that word snow, but... Uh, um, especially not when talking about beauty, but uh, really uh, there are some great places, some lovely places, some beautiful places, some amazing places. Uh, Recently, our granddaughter was, uh, uh, and my wife were talking about uh, places to go, and she wanted to go to Disney World. And my wife said, no, you you should go to the Grand Canyon. She says, why? It's just a big ditch. (laughs) Well, she hasn't come to appreciate the beauty of a place like that. But, you know, while all these things are true about scenery, really, many times, no one word or even several combinations of words adequately express the understanding that staggers the senses over what the eye beholds even in nature and if we cannot do justice to describing scenes in nature well then how can we describe the son of god our redeemer with just maybe one word or even just a few words how can we explain the wonder that god the creator became flesh and took all of our weak all of the weaknesses of humanity And except for sin, of course, but he did much more. He bore our sin before the horrors of God's eternal justice while at the cross. And he felt such agony of soul that he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? No title, no name or description of Jesus Christ adequately explains the depth or the majesty of his person or the character and the accomplishment of his redemptive work. And so we have multiple titles for Christ and multiple scenes that give us another glimpse of him until the day that the veil no longer covers our eyes and we see him as he is. In chapter 5, up into the point we are here in our text Matthew has been primarily recording the teachings of Christ. Much of it's in what we call the Sermon on the Mount, while other teachings arose out of circumstances that he encountered. 
And there is much more teaching to come as Matthew grouped all of Christ's discourses into actually five sections. It was uh, chapters 5 through 7 and then chapter 10 and chapter 13, chapter 18, and then chapters 24 and 25. But now it seems as we are at this point in the text here, seems to pause that we might kind of catch our breath, if you please, and contemplate and think about once more the majesty of our Lord. And Matthew does this by quoting from the prophet Isaiah's suffering servant language. Following this section are at least 17 references to Christ's passion before it takes place and predictions of his suffering on our behalf. Matthew lays the groundwork in our text for our understanding Christ as the suffering servant so that we can you know, fully connect with him and with the servant that was predicted 800 years before he was even born. In contrast to the Pharisees that huffed and connived and wrangled over Christ, we see Jesus serving. Jesus serving. How do you think of Christ? If we do not think rightly of him, then we must trust a God of our own making rather than the Christ that's revealed in the scripture. First of all, this morning, notice here, Christ chosen by God. Christ chosen by God. Chapter 12, beginning in verse 14, it says, Then the Pharisees went out and held a council against him how they might destroy him. Now, even though they had witnessed firsthand miraculous healings of a man with a withered hand, the Pharisees are still intent on destroying Christ. God's way is a way of humility and service and giving. It's modeled per- perfectly by the servant, Jesus Christ. Christ did not come with extravaganzas and pageantry, but he came as father, the Father's servant, obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And so we see here, first of all, submission. Submission to the Father. Submission to the Father as a servant. Before we we get there, let's go back to verse 15 and see, see what it says there. It says, but when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from thence and great multitudes followed him and he healed them all. Christ was not running from them, but he was prudently leaving, uh, moving to another area to continue his ministry. And then in verse 16, it says, and charged them that they should not make it known. It's one of the kind of strange commands that we find here in the, in the scriptures. But it's a warning that implies a stern, serious warning not to give away his messianic identity. And of course, the reason was that he didn't want to see a Messiah fever sweep through the land with expectations of political and military uh, a Messiah and the conquering of Rome. But that, of course, was not God's purpose. He had sent his son to secure an eternal kingdom. And so we see in verse 17 that it might be fulfilled that which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet saying. 
And here's where we see his reference here to the servant, the suffering servant prophecy of Isaiah. Those verse 18, as we look at this submission to the father, his servant, behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will, he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. Immediately here, we're confronted with this title servant. He says, behold, my servant, the servant whom I have chosen. Now, it's an interesting uh, thing that the word used here is sometimes even translated as child. <clears throat> and it's a fitting term because it conveys the message of submission. <coughs> Excuse me. Along with the beauty comes the pollen and the allergies. But sometimes the struggle, we struggle over why Christ did not just destroy his enemies. Why he didn't just paralyze them. I mean, these Pharisees, they were out to destroy him. Why didn't Jesus just strike him down? He had the power to do it. But no, we find him taking on the mantle of the servant. A role of total submission, not to them, but to his heavenly father. And he was going to carry out the eternal plans of redemption. And I don't believe there's any inconsistency between the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah, Messiah and the life that Jesus lived. And that's what Matthew is showing us here. You know, men might admire the strong arm of one that can mow down his enemies, yet Christ came to do the will of the Father. So often, the idea is portrayed in Hollywood and through television and all kinds of ways. Just mow them down. That wasn't Jesus' way of doing things, was it? Matthew's showing us that he came to do the will of the Father. He took upon himself the form of a servant, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made of himself made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Philippians 2. And so we find here submission to the Father as a servant. Secondly, notice here he was faithful in mission as God's servant. Faithful in mission as God's servant. A servant had particular responsibilities to his master. Now, some might care for the master's home. Some might tend to his crops. Others might train his children. Of course, none would have no purpose. They all had a purpose. They all had a mission. And so we read here, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen reminds us that Christ was faithful to his mission as God's suffering servant. Jesus Christ did not receive his mission from the religious leaders. The Pharisees were not the ones that gave him his mission. That was given only by way of the Father. He chose the Son alone as mediator to fulfill the mission of eternal redemption. 
The writer of Hebrews reminds us that no one takes the honor of being high priest to himself, but he must be appointed by God as for such a role. And that was what happened with Christ. Called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek, Hebrews 5.10. And while the priests of Aaron served, in, uh, served God in the tabernacle in the temple, Jesus Christ alone continued ever hath an unchangeable priesthood, it says in Hebrews 7. And he needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 27. And for this reason Jesus can show judgment to the Gentiles. Judgment was served at the cross by the sacrifice of God's servant. Now the language here is of speaks of a divine mission for Christ's servant to be. And it's a language that you find throughout the Bible. In Isaiah 53 and verse 11, it says, My righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Christ prayed to his Father in John chapter 17 and verse 4, I have glorified thee on the, the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And the mission theme is also found as Christ prayed... Uh, for his followers. He said in John 17, as thou hast sent me into the world, even so also I, uh, I also sent them into the world. Every detail of his mission was completed with faithfulness. So much so that the cross, our Lord at the cross, he would declare it is finished. He completed his mission. And so if Christ has indeed faithfully completed the redemptive work the Father sent him to accomplish, then why would any among us scramble around trying to justify ourselves before God? Can you or I add one thing to what Christ has already done? Certainly not. He was faithful in his mission to secure our salvation for all eternity. But in spite of this, there are multitudes of people today who will not trust in what Christ has faithfully accomplished and they turn to their own energies and it saddens our hearts, it grieves us when friends and family and neighbors and loved ones and people that we know and work with spend all kinds of energy trying to come up with their own way to God when it's already been completed for them. And all that's needed is just put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ. God's faithful servant has finished the redemptive work. He had submission to the Father as a servant. He faith, was faithful in mission as God's servant. And then thirdly, he was beloved by the Father. Remember at the baptism of Christ and his First transfiguration, the voice of the Father echoed from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is the language of the next phrase here uh, we find in verse uh, 18. My beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. The use of my soul points to the entirety of being Uh, the entirety of the being of God. It's another way of saying, I am well pleased. 
What we must see is that the Father sent his Son into the world to suffer for sinners, not because he lacked fondness for his Son, but instead because the Son is the most beloved in the infinite heart of the Father, and the value of the Father places on his Son cannot be measured, it cannot be weighed. Christ is the beloved of the Father in whom all the divine delights. We might love someone because of what they have done for us, or the potential they have to do things for us, but the father loves his son with an inexhaustible, selfless, joyous, satisfying love. All that the Christ did pleased the father. I want you to think about the implications of that for a moment. The father sent his his servant on a mission. And he sent him to secure the eternal salvation of the whosoever of every age. It could not be done by anyone else of the human race because all under Adam's curse uh, are under Adam's curse in the fall. No angel qualified. Since angels are not a part of our race or a part of the Godhead. So their sacrifice would lack inadequate value to secure redemption. The price for the redemption of human beings must be paid by another human being. Even as we understand in our own judicial system, a dog or a horse can't be a substitute for a man. A man breaks the law, he can't say, well, put my dog in jail. No, it won't work. You sentence me to death, kill my horse. No, it doesn't work. And so a human being had to be our substitute. The beloved of the Father who always does what pleases the Father and who gives the Father infinite delight is the one sent by the Father to obtain eternal redemption. Did he do it? Well, he certainly did. For it is in Christ alone with whom the Father is well pleased. I wonder this morning, is your trust in Christ alone? Are you trying to trust something else? He was beloved by the Father. And then fourthly, he was anointed by the Spirit. Anointed by the Spirit. What the Bible teaches is that we are indwelled and even filled with the Spirit as Christians Well, Jesus Christ was anointed by the Spirit for the work that the Father had given to him. He says, I will put my Spirit upon him. The Spirit's anointing was the evidence of his appointment. Just as Christ understood what, when he read from the scroll uh, in Isaiah and over in Nazareth, where he said, it says in Luke 4, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And though he was one with the spirit in his deity, he needed the anointing of the spirit in his humanity. For 30 years, Jesus worked in obscurity until the time of his divine commissioning at his baptism and after his baptism he and testing in the wilderness, Luke tells us that he returned to Galilee and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee and there went out a fame of him through all the region 
roundabout. And so it is this Christ, the chosen servant of the Father, faithful in his redemptive mission, infinitely beloved by the Father, anointed with the power of the, uh, of the Holy Spirit, this, this Christ that I commend to you. Are you trusting in the gods of your imagination? Or is your confidence before the eternal throne of God resting in the suffering servant of God, Jesus Christ? Christ, the chosen one by God, chosen by God. Secondly, notice Christ compassionate toward the weak, compassionate toward the weak. Again, the contrast here with the Pharisees, I think, is very evident They were out to conspire against Christ. They were out to destroy him. But Jesus Christ humbly served the weak and the helpless. I think of how countries like Iraq and Afghanistan and Liberia, as well as Iran and North Korea, have to live with men who were arrogant and ruthless, despotic men ruling their countries. These tyrants, they demand devotion of their people. If not given freely, they're forced devotion and their submission by threats and by beatings and by imprisonment. And they have left nations broken with millions of wounded and bleeding souls, helpless and weak. So weak, they cannot even lift themselves. It is for such people that Jesus came into the world for. He came for the weak and the helpless and the despised. Tyrants will use helpless people to carry out their selfish devices, but it's Jesus Christ who lifts the helpless people from the dunghill to the palace in his divine love. Now notice how he was First of all, humble in his character. Jesus does his work humbly. Verse 19 says, He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. We are so accustomed to big splashes in our day. Fanfare, men announcing their intentions to govern perhaps various arenas of public life. And the lights flash and the cameras roll and the confetti drops and entertainers play while some figures make attempts at humbly appealing for votes. But not so with Jesus Christ. We see him withdrawing from the pressing crowds that would make him an earthly king and unlike the Pharisees that squawked and squealed at every turn, Jesus Christ draws no attention to himself by the flashy displays. When people ask Christ to do a miracle so that they could gawk at him, he would refuse. Even in his triumphant entry into Jerusalem as he prepared for his passion, Christ rode on a donkey's colt. It wasn't in a glittering Mercedes chariot. Just on an old donkey. And that humility pleases the Father as it befits the character he produces in those he saves. You see, Jesus' humility does not fit the world's mold and manner. 
Christ came to reverse the plunging pride of the fall so that all that would follow him must walk the way of the cross, the way of humility before him. Humble in his character. Secondly, he was gentle in his actions. In the previous chapter, we heard the great invitation of Christ for those that were weary and heavy burdened to come. And he said there in chapter 11, For I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. And in our text here, verse 19 expresses the humility of Christ. And then verse 20 points to his gentleness. A bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment unto victory. Now the metaphors here, and this comes again as a quotation from Isaiah. And so the metaphors that Isaiah used describe two common yet weak items in the typical ancient Eastern life. Shepherds often would use reeds as uh, flutes and they would pipe their way, uh, their time away with these homespun musical instruments. And the reed was found in abundance along the riverbanks, but the reed was very delicate in nature. It could be easily crushed, and so it would be rendered useless then. The smoking flax is the word there, the phrase is uh, is a word that we use for linen. In this case, it was linen threads that were dipped in oil for lighting small lamps. It was like a wick. A smoking or smoldering wick. If you did not have enough fuel to saturate them, these wicks would quickly smolder and they would easily fall apart. And the prophet uses these metaphors here to refer to the weak and helpless people. It is to those that have realized their own sinfulness and spiritual condition before God. Though all men are weak, All do not recognize that they are weak, do they? I'm tough. I'm strong. I can handle it. I can go through life. I don't need Christ. I don't need that old Bible. I'll make it on my own. No. We have to realize we are weak and we have to recognize our spiritual state And here are those that cast themselves upon Christ, realizing they have nothing to commend them to God. It conveys a deep fear that God will not accept them due to their condition, their terrible condition, that he will justly pound away at them because their sin and weakness is great. One writer in the 18th century talked about these weaknesses. He said this, he finds himself weak in knowledge, weak in love, weak in faith, weak in hope, weak in joy, weak in zeal for God and interests of his kingdom, weak in repentance, weak in conflict with indwelling sin that is perpetually making insurrections within him, weak in resisting temptations, weak in courage, weak in prayer, weak in abilities to endeavor uh, the conversions of sinners. Weak in everything in which he should be strong. I don't know about you, but I can relate. I can relate to that. Do you ever find yourself in that kind of weakness? Wondering how Christ will deal with you? Do you ever wonder or do you ever consider that he 
loves you. Even when you're weak and you're helpless, he will not shun you or deny you his forgiveness. He will not withhold his gracious care of you. Now, the description of Christ here is, I think, for each one of us. He does not break the reed that is already battered and considered useless. He does not extinguish the smoking flax that appears to be on its last spark. Jesus Christ is for the broken and crushed and despised and helpless and the weak. If that is you, then you have a welcome with him. I encourage you this morning to taste and see that he is good. Trust his kindness, trust his compassion to work in you until his sanctifying purposes are complete and you stand whole before him forever. And then notice Christ, hope for the nations. The bruised reeds and the smoking flax are not just in ancient Israel. They are found among the nations. Verse 21 says, And in his name shall the Gentiles trust. The familiar term Gentile is a translation of a word that literally means people or nation. When Matthew used this term, he referred to the peoples outside of Judaism, the nations or people groups of the world. And his prophecy is a message of hope for the nations or To use more precise language, it is hope for the thousands of people, groups among the nations. And we've been challenged here, and I hope you're still praying for the unreached people groups on a daily basis. Thousands and millions of people in our world today who have no gospel witness. They have no Bible in their language. But Christ gives hope to those who recognize their helplessness before God. And notice how he does this. First of all, by his proclamation. By his proclamation back in verse 20. It says there, till he send forth judgment into victory. The proclamation is found in the preaching of Christ that calls upon the nations to repent and believe. Judgment is not simply a proclamation of, of laws, but the divine de- Disclosure of God's character and purposes for the benefit of all the nations. But with his proclamation is also accountability. Men must take action when they hear of God, the creator, and his moral demands upon all of humanity. And such accountability will leave men helpless until they look to God's provision in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, there is a sense that every believer has taken up this mantle of Christ in proclaiming justice to the nations. We have a clear mission. We have a mission, and that is to declare God as God, the creator and the sustainer of the world, to declare God's law as the just, the moral demands upon his creation, to declare that all men are accountable to God for breaking his law, and to declare that God has provided satisfaction for his justice through the death and resurrection of his own son. And we can make bold proclamations because Jesus succeeded in the divine mission of redemption. You know, sometimes you might make a 
a statement and you say such and such happens and you really don't know if it happened or not. <laughs> you assume it happened. You hope it happened. You think it happened. But not with the gospel. You can be bold. You know it happened. God said it would happen and it did happen. Christ has completed his redemption by his proclamation. And then secondly, by his triumph. Again, the theme of judgment comes with the assurance that Christ will patiently, compassionately serve the weak and helpless until he secures the satisfaction of God's justice, till he send forth judgment unto victory. And I think of victory as a term used when a conflict is encountered. Of course, the conflict is with Satan, it was with sin, with death. All of these raged against Jesus Christ at the cross, but he conquered. And he burst forth in victory over every sin that weakens us and every assault of Satan that paralyzes us. Not even death could hold back our Lord as he burst forth from the tomb in triumph. We do not call people to come to a weak and whiny, dried up religious leader that has very nice things to say to you. That's not the kind of person we call people to. We call, him to. we call people to come to Jesus Christ who burst forth in victory as a triumphant captain of our salvation and the king of our lives by his proclamation, by his triumph, and by his person. By his person. You are not called to a spiritual concept. You're not just called to an idea. You're called to a living person. A living person. The real thing. Jesus Christ, and in his name shall the Gentiles trust. We have seen the use of name quite often in our study of God's word. It refers to much more than a name by which you are called. It's a reference to the whole person. To trust in his name implies that our confidence for eternity rests in Jesus Christ the Lord. He alone restores the battered reeds and rekindles the smoldering wicks of this world. The word trust speaks of hope and has become a precious word to me over the years. I find myself using it often. I say something like this. I trust things are well with you. I mean, I hope you're doing well. But the biblical usage has nothing to do with wishful thinking. But instead, it, it conveys a confident expectation that God's promises will come forth to fruition. It means that something is certain, but you're still waiting for it to unfold. You know, the farmer... He's going to look upon his cornfields and maybe looking at them now and say, boy, can I ever get that crop in? But if he gets it in, gets it in in a timely fashion and the weather cooperates, the farmer looks at his cornfield weighed down with a crop and he hopes and anticipates a full harvest. It's there. He can see it. He can imagine it. But he's got to wait for it. He's got to wait for the right time for the full harvest to become a reality. 
And our trust and our hope is in Christ. It's a hope or an anticipation of a day arriving when we will no longer be weakened by sin or downcast by our failures. It's a day of great victory when we stand before him perfected because of his justifying and sanctifying work fully applied unto glorification. I wonder this morning, do you know this hope? Do you have this hope? Listen, it's hope in Christ that will carry you through the dark valleys of life. And every one of us encounter the dark valleys. But it's this hope that will carry you through. This Christ, chosen by God as his servant, suffered in submission to the Father for your salvation. He was faithful in all that God sent him to do so that you can be assured that he triumphed over every obstacle between you and a right relationship with God. God's servant is compassionate to the bruised reeds and the smoking flax or wicks among us. Look to him as your hope before God for eternity. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you this morning for Jesus Christ, whom you chose. Jesus Christ, who was compassionate toward the weak because we are weak. And we thank you, Lord, for this hope that we have because of what Christ suffered for us. We thank you for his example. We thank you, Lord, that even as his example is diametrically opposed to the world's way of thinking, that we too will be humble and meek in our service for you. And we look forward to the day when we'll be face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ. I trust, Lord, and I pray, Lord, that each one here this morning has a relationship with Jesus Christ and they have that hope of eternal life. If there's someone here without that hope, I pray, Lord, today would be the day of their salvation. They'll come to know this Christ in a very personal way. Lord, bless as we close our service this morning. Have your will and way in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.